1: I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, hello there. How are we all doing this week? I hope we're doing great. I am exhausted. (laughs) My brain has been on full podcasting mode nonstop for the past seven days, at least. Like, usually I have a little bit of a brain break. But that hasn't really happened because if you are listening to this the day that it comes out, Friday, August 18th, a new show that I've been working on, a new podcast by the name of Still Learning with my friend India Oxenberg is now available. And yours truly was the co-producer. I did all of the sound. I did the editing. I did some extra writing. I helped come up with a lot of the ideas and I'm part of all of the interviews And it's been such a learning experience in so many ways because it's such a different show than your Angry Neighborhood Feminist is. There's a lot more parts to it. There's more people involved. We're trying to get the show sold. (laughs) You know, all of this kind of stuff. It's definitely a bigger beast than I'm used to. And it's really helped me heighten my skills in a lot of ways. I feel like I've learned a lot more about podcasting, especially since we do this completely long distance and India had no prior like regular podcasting experience rather than being the person who was being interviewed. So being on the other side of it and learning how to do all of the podcasting stuff on her own was totally new to her. But I also had so many new things that I learned and I found some new strengths that I had. And it's been such A wonderful experience. So I want to get this out before I forget to mention it. If you are listening to this Friday, August 18th at 11 a.m. Pacific time or 2 p.m. Eastern time, depending on where you live in the United States, India and I will be going live on the Angry Neighborhood Feminist podcast page where we're going to talk about the show and how it got started and working together and also kind of just talk about what the whole show is about learning, growing, healing, all of that kind of stuff and what that looks like to us and what that looks like to the audience that tunes in. So if you want to be a part of that, definitely don't miss it. Be sure to catch us on Instagram live. It's also just been really great to get to know a new friend better and better and better and to like really, you know, fall in love with this person in a friend way, I guess is a good way to put it. And to have someone that I can rely on and who gets me and all of my weirdness is very rare, I feel. So I find myself counting my blessings that India's come into my life and that we have the opportunity to work together. So now that that's all out of the way, (laughs) I just wanted to say all of that. I can't wait for all of you to listen. I hope you do so. I'm gonna add the link to the first episode in the show notes. And be sure to follow the podcast page at Still Learning the Podcast on Instagram as well. All right, so the second order of business is Patreon, particularly the Angry Feminist Book Club. So <laughs> I made a little reel on Instagram. I'll give you what it's about right now in case you didn't see it. But I don't know if you all realized when you voted for the second sex. I know I certainly didn't realize when I gave it up as an option. The book club this month that it's over 700 pages full of very dense but very great philosophical mumbo jumbo stuff and very, very dense. So it's going to take me longer than a few weeks. And because I've been working on still learning so much, I've been not able to work on the book club episodes as much. But I did pretty much have. An episode completed where I was talking about the author, Simone de Beauvoir, because she's a really interesting and complicated figure because she is regarded as being, you know, a feminist in our history that has made a lot of, I guess, big steps toward our equality. And has been regarded very highly for a very long time. But there have also been many, many allegations of sexual assault, particularly from minors that have been held up against Simone, which made me also kind of want to not talk about the book. But I do think that it's actually probably an important conversation to have about these complicated figures and not necessarily have it be a feminist faves-type episode because I'm not trying to tell you this person is amazing, but just to try to understand someone else's psychology and who another person is and to be able to point out their flaws, point out their problems, and to also make it known that this person probably shouldn't be put on the pedestal that they are for these reasons. I don't think that it's discussed enough because I still see Simone's books as some of the first ones that show up when you Google like feminist books, you know? So with all that, what I'm getting at is that I've decided that I'm gonna release a couple of bonus episodes and one of them is going to be about Simone de Beauvoir. I wanna come up with something really fun for the second bonus episode, but then I also want to do a Zoom book party because I think that would be so much fun. There's not like too many listeners already right now where it would be really hard for everyone to talk and have a conversation. I just think it would be so, so, so much fun. So I'm thinking that we can do that that we could do that in the last week of August. And I'm looking at my calendar right now. And how's everyone's Wednesday nights look? Would that be good? I think that'd be really fun to get together to chat about some of the books we've already read, to get to know each other, put some faces to names, and really build more of a community. Because you know me, that's the point of all of this. And if you want to join in on the Angry Feminist Book Club action, you can go to patreon.com slash Feminist and join the book club for $5 a month. But if you want to join the book club and get a little bit of extra bonus stuff, you can join the Feminist Faves level. And I keep messing up the price of the Feminist Faves level. I'm so sorry. I've been saying $7 recently, but it is actually $8. I hope that's okay with everybody. Uh, But with that, you get ad-free versions, ad free versions of these episodes, you will usually get them a little bit early today. Like I said, it's been a little bit crazy. So you're probably going to get this Friday morning instead of Thursday afternoon slash evening, Thursday evening slash afternoon, like I have been able to do lately. You'll also t- just get like some random perks and things like that. I started a close friends list on Instagram a while ago, and I'm still waiting for everyone to respond with their handles because I'll post some more, you know, behind the scenes and private stuff <laughs> or whatever on the close friends list on Instagram as well for my feminist faves. So yeah, that's everything. Again, patreon.com slash angry neighborhood.
0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving god and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.
1: ...or click the link in the show notes. All right, sorry, that was more housekeeping than usual, but I did need to get all of that out. I probably even forgot something, but you know what? We're just going to keep moving forward. Now, the first thing that I wanted to discuss has to do with that movie The Blind Side that came out in 2009 with Sandra Bullock, Clinton Aaron, Kathy Bates, and a high school aged black boy who had, you know, been raised around substance abuse and poverty and was shuffled between foster homes and homelessness and how when he finally meets this white family at this nicer school, they adopt him and help him move on to play college football and then eventually play in the NFL and it's this like great feel-good movie, allegedly. And I say allegedly because I've never seen it. It's never really appealed to me. And once I got a little bit older, and I realized that this movie is literally like the poster child for the white savior trope, I was like, you know, and I think I did okay in missing that one. <laughs> so for those of you who are familiar with that story, do you know that it is Based on a true story. You probably did. I'm sorry. I don't mean to talk down to you. But it is about a young man who turned out to be an NFL player by the name of Michael Ower, I think it is pronounced. And the family that adopted him were the Tui family, which is Leanne and Sean. Michael voiced his displeasure with the way the movie portrayed his intelligence when it was first released. He said in his book, I beat the odds from homelessness to the blind side and beyond. I felt like the movie portrayed me as dumb instead of as a kid who had never had consistent academic instruction and ended up thriving once he got it. He also disliked that the film made it seem that his adopted family taught him the game of football. In his book, he wrote, No, that's not me at all. I've been studying, really studying the game since I was a kid. And that's just not fair. Like, it seems like it's a white savior kind of movie enough. You don't need to also add that this white family showed him football. I don't know. That just seems a bit preposterous to me. He did also state in his book, though, that he feels like the film's overall message of perseverance was a good one. He even really liked the portrayal of his adopted family, writing, It seems like they helped me get to this point. They're my family, and without them, I wouldn't be here. They taught me a lot of things, showed me a lot of things. It shows that if you help somebody and give somebody a chance and don't judge people, look where you can get to. That just makes the rest of this story that much sadder. Much like in the movie, the real Michael was thrust into foster care at the age of seven and would experience homelessness as well as a child after he was removed from the home of his mother who suffered from substance abuse disorder and his father who was frequently in and out of prison. Due to all of this, he really struggled in school. He received little discipline and attention or even love in his childhood. He just seems forgotten and neglected And uh, to think of any child in pain, it just hurts me so much. They're so innocent. They're so good. They have so much potential. Like, love your fucking kids. And I'm not saying, you know, obviously the mother was going through substance abuse issues. It wouldn't surprise me if the father was or if that had something to do with his prison time. I'm not sure. I'm just speculating. But I'm not blaming them necessarily because I understand what that disease does to you and how that makes you parent. But it still just makes me so sad and it makes me want to jump into a time machine and go back and mother this child. But then maybe I'd be the same as Leanne Tui, so maybe not. (laughs) But again, much like in the movie, football was a way out for him. Before he even met the Tooheys, other adults in his life were encouraging him to apply to a better school where he could play football. Once he got to that school, he met the Tui family in 2004. They also had a daughter who had attended Michael's school. When they found out about Michael's difficult childhood, they began taking care of him, including hiring a tutor. Michael would go on to play for the Baltimore Ravens, the Tennessee Titans, and the Carolina Panthers, even winning a Super Bowl championship with the Ravens in 2013. (sighs) And now, in the present, Michael Ower is back in the news, and he is opening up about the real treatment he endured by the Tui family. This month, he filed a lawsuit alleging that Leanne and Sean Tui never actually adopted him. Let's just stop for a second. Never actually adopted him. Now, I've never seen this movie. I legit thought that there was like the legal process of adoption and they were the parents and he was the son, but no, that's a lie. And not only that, Michael didn't even know that he wasn't legally adopted. Instead of adopting him, they created a conservatorship, which gave them legal authority to make business deals in his name. Of course, we all remember the very in-depth discussions of conservatorships when we we're discussing when we've discussed Britney Spears on this show. I feel like that's how most people know about what conservatorships are. But essentially, for those of you who don't know, a conservatorship is basically giving someone else the right to financially make decisions, personally make decisions, you know, X, Y, Z, for a person who is unable to do so for themselves. And what's been kind of showing up in the news and has come more into the public consciousness is that a lot of times these conservatorships are being abused and used on people who do not actually need to be under conservatorships. And it really does put an absorbent amount of power in the hands of the conservator. And it's very upsetting when thinking about Michael's story, what he's been through, and also what he's been told for now the majority of his life. I believe I saw that he's 37 years old now, so it's definitely been about 20 years or so that they've been a quote-unquote family. And I can't imagine how heartbreaking this discovery would be. Okay, moving on. He argued that they used this power to make a deal that paid them and their two children millions of dollars in royalties from the blindside film, while Michael allegedly received nothing. His lawsuit is asking to end the conservatorship and issue an injunction barring them from using his name and likeness. It has also asked for a full record of the documents and money that the twoies earned using his name. He also wants to be paid a share of the profits and other compensatory and punitive damages. The twoies argue, through their lawyer, that they have given, quote, an equal cut of every penny received from the film to Michael, but that he refused to accept his share of the money. They claim that when he refused the money, they then put it all into a trust account for him where... Allegedly, it still waits. The Tuies do admit to setting up a conservatorship, claiming, via their lawyer again, that it was set up months after Michael had turned 18 in May of 2004. Michael claims that he was told to call them mom and dad, though they never made any attempt to adopt him before he turned 18. He said he was to sign paperwork when he moved in with the family in order to start the adoption process, but says he was, quote, falsely advised that it would be called a conservatorship because he was over the age of 18, but they still had adoption as the end goal. This seems a little fishy already, am I right? So Michael, it seems, thought that this conservatorship was bringing him that much closer to an adoption, but when he discovered the true nature of it earlier this year, as you can imagine, he was heartbroken and fucking pissed. This conservatorship provided him no familial relation to the TUIs. My life would be shattered. Can you imagine thinking for so many years of your life that you were adopted and a real, quote unquote, real member of this family, only to find out decades later that it wasn't true? Again, the TUIs, through the lawyer, argue that the conservatorship was set up to assist Michael with health insurance, to get a driver's license, and it was going to help him get admitted into college. Sean claims that the conservatorship would somehow make sure Michael was eligible to play football at the University of Mississippi, Sean's alma mater, and prevent any trouble from the NCAA. This isn't explained anywhere as to why having an adoption would help this, Again, it just seems really fishy. Sean said, Michael was obviously living with us for a long time, and the NCAA didn't like that. They said the only way Michael could go to Ole Miss was if he was actually part of the family. But you still didn't adopt him. And Sean says that he claimed that he made it clear to Michael that the lawyers told him that he couldn't be adopted due to the fact that he was over 18, which I call bullshit upon, because Tennessee does allow for adult adoption. However, Sean claimed that he was advised not to do so. In an article that I read through Yahoo News, a lawyer by the name of Harry Nelson, who has a lot of experience with conservatorships, said, Rather than an adoption which would have given Michael potential rights in their family, the Tui's actions stripped him of his personal autonomy and gave them the ability to profit from him and control him. The Tui family lawyers also allege that Michael had threatened them before he filed the lawsuit earlier this month, saying that he would plant negative news stories about them unless they paid him $15 million. They referred to it as a shakedown. This all seems coded and covered in racism to me. It's kind of like... Look, it was the big black NFL linebacker who was threatening us little innocent white folk. Isn't that more likely? Like, get over yourself, Karens. Lawyer Harry Nelson said he doesn't understand why Michael had to go into a conservatorship to begin with. Quote, Given the absence of any evidence that Michael Ower was unable to make decisions for himself, it makes absolutely no sense that the Tuohys sought a conservatorship in the first place or that they were able to keep the conservatorship in place for so many years. It gave them an inordinate level of control that is totally at odds with the way they portrayed their relationship. Had there been evidence that other people were preying on Ower and he was unable to protect himself, it might have made sense. But here, it looks like the Tuies themselves were the predators. Lawyer Harry also said how strange it was, even if the conservatorship was necessary, that it wasn't necessary to have it go on for nearly two decades. Quote, If Mr. Toohey were correct that the only reason for the conservatorship was to admit Michael into college, then there would be no reason for Mr. Toohey to remain as the conservator of Michael for 19 years. Lawyer Harry calls this a disturbing case and commends Ower for taking it to court. Quote, This case appears to be one of the most troubling episodes of abuse of conservatorship I can recall. Michael Ower is a successful person, a father, a husband, engaged in many projects, and not a person who, by any stretch of the imagination, is appropriate for a conservatorship. I expect you are going to see that this was a financial tool for the twoies to profit and it's sad to see a nice story about a family taking in a homeless kid and giving him a home replaced with a story of their inability to restrain themselves from trying to control and profit off of him. There have been longtime reports that he was unhappy about his betrayal in the book The Blind Side Evolution of the Game and his unhappiness now makes much more sense. He was a victim of people he thought were trying to take care of him. He calls Ower's lawsuit courageous in the sense that this is personally embarrassing for him that he was taken advantage of and subjected to a grossly inappropriate form of legal control for so long. It would have been understandable for Michaels who want to quietly negotiate an end to this situation without calling attention to it. It seems that he is willing to endure the scrutiny which may also be reflective of his anger and sense of having been abused by people he once thought loved him and he now understands wanted to monetize the relationship with him. It seems like the case will be unopposed by the Tui's because they have no rightful basis for exerting this degree of control. This is a much more disturbing case than others because of the lack of any indication to justify this relationship. I do think it's kind of a shame that he mentioned the shame and scrutiny because I hope that in this day and age we can understand victims better and not blame them as much especially when it comes to a male victim, especially when it comes to a black male victim. I hope that we don't still hold them up to these ridiculous standards where they can't be vulnerable and express the fact that they were taken advantage of and abused. I think this is incredibly courageous, which that lawyer also said, but it really was a shame to hear about the potential scrutiny and things like that. And I wonder if that was something that, michael considered or thought about i'm sure his pr and his team or someone had mentioned it at some point but i'm really proud of him for coming forward and speaking the truth as far as ending the conservatorship goes the tui stated that of course they would be willing to end it now they just got to show us the actual receipts and how much fucking money you made off of this guy All right, on to the next topic. And I don't want to spend too much on this, but I do feel like it's notable and it should be discussed. But honestly, all of these Trump indictments and all of this kind of stuff, for some reason it's boring to me because I just am like, okay, you know what? After the first one or two, they kind of all seem the same. I'm happy that this guy is going down for absolutely everything humanly possible. I'm glad that we're holding him accountable, so on and so forth. But it's just not something that I feel like needs to be discussed over and over again on the show. But this one has a nice little story to it. So I wanted to get into it a little bit. After two and a half years of hard work, a Fulton County, Georgia grand jury has indicted former President Trump and 18 others with federal RICO charges related to efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in that state. This is Trump's fourth indictment now. He's collecting them, and he's already facing federal charges from January 6th and classified document probes, as well as the Manhattan DA's hush money case. It's also important to remember that prior to Trump, no other previous president has ever been indicted. Making history over and over again, Mr. Trump. He and the 18 other defendants have until August 25th to voluntarily surrender to the authorities. So I probably will mention mention this again at the end of the month and see what unfolds with that. Now this is where the story gets chef's kiss. Great. I mentioned that... He is being charged, and so are the 18 other people, are being charged with something called RICO charges. And in a sweet, sweet sense of irony, it was actually Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who, by the way, is one of the 18 others that's charged, was the one who created the federal statute called Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, or RICO, as a way to quell the scourge of organized crime in New York in the mid-1980s. So yes, the very thing that he has created is now taking him down. It's so beautiful. Alright, there's one other thing that I wanted to discuss. And that is because a dear listener by the name of Sonia reached out to me and wanted me to talk about it. I apologize to you and my other Canadian listeners if... I don't understand all of this well enough, but I did also reach out to Sonia to ask for some of her opinions as well, so I could better understand how the Canadian people are reacting to all of this. So in June, Canada's Online News Act was assented by the Canadian government. And the Online News Act, according to www.canada.ca, it was enacted due to, quote, Digital platforms playing an integral role in Canada's news ecosystem, shifting the way Canadians access news content that is vital to democracy. These platforms can play an important role in supporting the production of trusted news and information as well. Justin Trudeau, I know you're going through a divorce right now, but like, where are you to help us out right now? The bill, C-18, became law in June, and it requires tech companies to compensate media organizations if they want to host Canadian news content on their platforms. It will also require companies such as Google and Meta, which owns Instagram and Facebook, to develop agreements with Canadian news sites to provide them with compensation for sharing their content. So eventually, Google and Meta are being asked to pay money to be able to display Canadian news. And Meta has now confirmed that it will end access to news on its social media sites for all Canadian users. In June, they made a statement saying, in order to comply with Bill C-18, content from news outlets, including news publishers and broadcasters, will no longer be available to people accessing our platforms in Canada. I can imagine this is going to drastically affect the way that Canadian citizens go about getting their news, Social media has become one of the main resources for news these days, as it gives us an even quicker access to information than the 24-hour news cycle on TV, and we can easily look up specific stories or information that you're looking for, rather than waiting for it to show up on TV later, or radio. And like I said, I messaged the listener Sonia back, and I asked her how she felt about all of this. Not being in the middle of it myself, I really wanted to know how it was personally affecting other people. And she basically explained to me that there are certain things going on that she wasn't aware of due to the fact that the news has become more inaccessible. She said it feels very isolating, and I can imagine that it would. Part of this seems like it's censoring free speech somehow. And again, this is Canada, not the U.S. And it really, I guess, isn't technically doing that. But it just seems very, very strange to be safeguarding this information from our social media sites. I know that there has been a lot of issue, at least in the United States, I'm assuming in Canada and other places as well, about how Facebook handles misinformation that's being posted, Instagram as well, and I know that that's been a really big issue. So I don't know if part of this is the Canadian government's plan to spearhead that attack in a way, but at the same time, by doing this and kind of, you know, pinning these huge egos attached to these large tech companies up against the wall, they're going to be like, no, fuck you. Like We're not going to pay you to show, you know, Canada news tonight or whatever. But I am wondering how broad this scope is, especially since she was saying that she felt like she wasn't getting some of the news that she felt that she needed and wanted so I don't know if it's just because it's written from Canada if there are you know maybe U.S. publications that can be seen online I'm not sure if they are going to be you know doing this for more individual news sources like podcasts and things like that I'm really not sure what the stretch is with all of that but no matter what it is incredibly isolating to be separated from what's happening in the news like that is a very common tactic in an abusive relationship to isolate the person and to cut them off from their reality from the outside world whether it be friends a news source anything like that in order to make that person more reliant upon them and I just keep thinking about that as well but on top of it human beings survive in packs We thrive off living in a community. And like it or not, many of our communities are now created online through social media. And the news is a really big part of that. I feel like that's how I get most of my news alerts. Like my little Apple alert will come on. Or I'll get texts from a friend if it's something that's, you know, really applicable to me in some way, like when Robbie Robertson died earlier this week, and I got messages from multiple people telling me, you know, things like that. So I can't imagine not having that instant access and being very frustrated and not having it anymore. I read that 18% of Canadians access their news through the television, 25% via the radio, and 44% in print. That seems incredibly high. 44% in print? Damn. 56% of Canadians over the age of 55 turn into TV news compared to just 28% aged 35 to 54 and then 19% for those aged 18 to 34. And even that seems really high. 19% of Canadians aged 18 to 34 are watching the nightly news. I applaud you. With the majority of the population using search engines and social media to access information, this bill is affecting a lot of people and Canadians are slowly starting to see it go into effect. So if there's anything that I missed in that little portion that you think would be important for me to bring up, if you want to share your experience, I want to know more. I am but a dumb American. Please teach me and educate me. (laughs) All right, my friends, that is everything that I have for you in this week's mini episode. I'm going to remind you all first and foremost that Still Learning the Podcast with India Oxenberg is now available and that we will be doing an Instagram live on Friday, August 18th at 11 a.m. Pacific time slash 2 p.m. Eastern time. We're also going to be doing the Angry Feminist Book Club a little bit differently. So if you want to join the book club Zoom party, we decided that that is going to be on Wednesday, August the 30th. And I'm going to decide on a time. I'll keep you all up to date And you can also look forward to a couple of bonus episodes coming your way as a thank you. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Share an episode with a friend if you think you would like it. As always, thank you so much for all of your love and your support and helping me be able to do what I love to do most, which is this show. That's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on.